You're listening to the Central Church Podcast. To learn more about Central Church, including our gathering times, please visit gocentralchurch.org. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ethan Crowder. Go ahead and meet me in Zephaniah, the minor prophet, uh, there towards the end of your Old Testaments. Uh, this is where we will spend our time together this morning. If you are new with us or if you haven't been here in several weeks, uh, we've been walking through the Minor Prophets, uh, the Book of the Twelve. And uh, we're not going verse by verse necessarily through these books, but we are just trying to see what was God's message to and through the prophet. Uh, and then what does that mean for us today? Uh, you know, one of the, the things that I've learned as uh, I've lived life, as I've moved through life, is this, is that perspective changes everything. Right? The, the way that you hear things, the way that you see things, the way that you encounter things, uh, your perspective changes everything. I, I learned this uh, several years ago. I had led a team to work with a church plant in Salt Lake City, Utah. We were working with a, a church plant doing a great work uh, in a difficult place and our time working with the church plant had come to an end, but we had several hours between the end of the church service on Sunday and then when we had to be back at the airport that night. And so we were talking with the church planner about some things that we could do. And he said, hey, Park City isn't a very far drive that you could go see the Olympic Village. And so we decided to load up and we headed to Park City and we go into the visitor center and we're, we're checking everything out. And I was with a few of my friends. Um, and they came over to me and they said, hey, Ethan, we can go bobsledding for $70 a person. Uh, and I thought, easy money, right? Like, here we go. We're, Ethan's going bobsledding. So uh, we pay our money and we're, we're standing down at the bottom and we can see the beginning of the track and we can see the sleds going and, and it doesn't look really like it's that bad. And then but we see the sled get to the end and the people get off and they're shaking and they're, they're a little nervous. And so we thought, oh, well, they just must have had a bad driver. So uh, we get on the truck to go back up to the top of the run. And the first thing they do when we get there is they hand us a neck brace and a helmet. Okay, whatever. Um, and so we, uh, we start talking with the driver and ask him, so what kind of training do you have to go through to be a bobsled driver? Like, well, you actually walk the course four times, you look at some pictures, and then you start driving. <laughs> oh, great, great. But I've seen cool runnings, so it was fine. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't nervous. And so then he starts saying, yeah, we don't, we don't do the full track whenever it's snowing because you go too fast. Now, this was May. There was snow on the ground, but uh, we were doing the full track. It, it wasn't ice anymore. I was like, okay, well, if you go too fast on the ice, how fast are we going to go uh, today? And he said, well, it's going to be somewhere between like 70 and 85 miles an hour. And suddenly my perspective changed, right? Uh, suddenly, like, I'm getting nervous. I'm, I'm squeezed into the back of this bobsled uh, with two guys that are much larger than me, uh, who thankfully I knew pretty well. And by the time we got to the end of that run, I was shaking and, and I was nervous. And the people who were about to get on the truck. They were making fun of me, right? My perspective had changed. When we look here at the book of Zephaniah, we're going to see how the Lord, through the prophet, is going to change our perspective on God's judgment. Now, Zephaniah plays an important role in the 12 minor prophets. One of the things that we've said is that the best way to read the 12 minor prophets is not to read them as 12 individual books, but instead to read them as one book, the book of the 12, divided up into maybe 12 sections. 
So Zephaniah, what Zephaniah is going to do is he is going to actually be a turning point for us in the book of the 12. And what he's going to do is he's going to summarize the message of the book of the 12. He's going to summarize their message about judgment. And so as we read Zephaniah, it is bad news, but then the bad news gives way to good news whenever our perspective changes. And that's what we see here in this book. So as we look here at the book of Zephaniah, this is the point that the prophet is teaching us, the prophet's communicating to us. It's this, God's judgment is bad news for those who love sin, but good news for those who love him. God's judgment is bad news for those who love sin, but it's good news for those who love him. So uh, look with me at Zephaniah. We're not going to start in chapter 1. We're actually going to start in chapter 3. So flip over to chapter 3 with me. Uh, Look with me at verse 14, and we're going to read down to verse 20. So let me invite you to stand uh, as we honor the reading of God's perfect and precious word here in Zephaniah chapter 3. Starting in verse 14, the Spirit of the Lord says to us this morning, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. And then verse 17, I love this verse. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together. For I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This is God's word. You can be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your grace. Lord, thank you for your word that is true. And Father, even now, we pray and we ask that you would speak to us because we want to hear from you. It's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen. Well, as we look at Zephaniah, as we we look at this book, we're going to see a a few ways that the Lord is calling us to relate to Him, a a few ways that the Lord is calling us uh, to pursue Him. And so the first way is this, is to see the Lord. See the Lord. Now, in Zephaniah, the main character of this book is not the prophet. The main character of this book is not Judah. It's not the other nations that he's going to address. The the main character of this book, just like in the rest of the Bible, is God. And so we've got to keep that in front of us because God, who he is and what he is like and what's true of him, is really what makes this entire book work. It's what makes this entire book make sense. Since. So in verse 1, we get some historical context for where Zephaniah is speaking. So look with me at verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah. Now stop right there. The most important thing that we see in this verse, and maybe one of the most important things we see in this book, is that this book is not the word of Zephaniah. 
Right? This book is the word of the Lord. This is God's word to Judah. This is God's word to the nations. And so the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now it's important that he says that, that this is happening in the days of Judah, or the days of Josiah. Uh, because Josiah, we know, uh, was a good king. Uh, Josiah, during his reign, uh, he rediscovers the law, and then he begins to institute some reforms based on the law. But what we also know is that Josiah's reign happens right after the reign of Manasseh, who was the most wicked king in Israel's history. So Manasseh set up altars to false gods. He set up altars to idols. And so coming out of that, we have Josiah. Now, what most commentators think is that Zephaniah, during his ministry, was actually at the beginning of Josiah's reign, not in the middle or the end, because apparently Josiah's reforms had yet to take root. They had yet to take hold. And so Zephaniah is really playing a part in seeing that Zephaniah's reforms, or that Josiah's reforms, are taken and made much of and and taken seriously. Now, ultimately, what we know is that Josiah's reforms were too little, too late, and Israel, Judah, would be judged. And so he he starts off by introducing who he is and and when he's speaking, and then look at verse 2. The Lord says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Now, this is a little different than what we read at the end of the book, right? At the end of the book, we're reading about God rejoicing over His people. We're we're reading about repentance and we're reading about grace. And yet here, the Lord begins His message to Judah by saying, I am going to sweep mankind from the face of the earth. See, this is a promise of punishment. This is a promise that God is going to display His great power. Now, what's interesting here is the way that God is going to display His power is He is going to decreate. He's going to uncreate what He has created. So if you look there at verses 2 and 3, you see that He's going to sweep away everything from the face of the earth. He's going to sweep away man and beast and birds and fish and the rubble of the wicked. He's going to cut off mankind. And so God's promise of judgment is that He is going to decreate all that He has created. But in verse 4, we see that there's a purpose for this. Verse 4, he says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah. Remember, this, at this time, Israel had divided into two kingdoms. There was Israel and there was Judah. And at this point, Israel, the northern kingdom, it had probably been defeated. And so it was just Judah that was left. And Judah, they were typically known to be the ones who would follow the Lord, to be the ones who took the law seriously. But obviously that had changed. Verse 4 says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priest, along with the priest, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. And so 
The Lord says that the reason that He's going to deliver this justice, the the reason He's going to deliver this judgment is because Judah, they had turned away and had started following false gods like Milcom or some of them were practicing syncretism, right? They were thinking that they could honor, that they could worship not just the God of Israel, but also these other idols that they believed would make them happy, that they believed would give them joy, that they believed would provide for them. But what the Lord is saying here. As he's saying, Judah, you are no different than the rest of the kingdoms of the earth. That you're no different than the rest of the nations of the world. And so because of that, you're going to be judged just like the rest of the nations of the world. Now, we don't have time to look at it this morning, but we could flip over to Zephaniah chapter 2. And what we'd find is we would find God promising judgment on all of the different nations, the, the neighboring nations around Judah. He's going to promise judgment. He's going to promise to judge them because of their wickedness and because of their sin. And yet here, what we see in verse 7 is that there's a response that the Lord is calling from His people. Look at verse 7. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The, The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated His guest. See, in light of this judgment, the Lord is calling His people to be silent before Him. He's calling His people to stop and to just see Him. To just understand and to know who it is that they have rebelled against. And so He's promised this great display of judgment because He wants His people to understand and to see just how great and just how strong He is. Now, what we also see here is that if if Judah is going to repent, if they are going to turn from their sins, then the way that it's going to happen is not by them trying to be better. The way that it's going to happen isn't going to be by them doing this or doing that. The way that Judah is going to turn from their sin is they have to stop and behold their God. They have to stop and to see who their God is and what He is like. This week, I I did a Google search, and I just typed in overcoming sin. And in less than a second, I had received 16.8 million search results on how do you overcome sin. And I just looked at the first page of articles, and I'm I'm sure these were all evangelical Christian organizations. I, I don't know much about them, but I found articles like this. Seven ways to overcome sin. Three steps to overcome sin. Ten points to beat sin. And what was interesting, what was missing from all of those articles was to fear God. See, that's what the Lord is calling us to here in verse 7. He's calling us to fear Him. See, maybe the reason that we don't take our sin seriously is because we don't really fear our God. Maybe the reason we feel like our sins are actually small sins is because we, maybe we wouldn't say it, but maybe we implicitly believe that we have a small God. See, here, the Lord's calling us, He's calling His people to see and to understand 
and to know who their God is. And that if we want to fight against sin, if we want freedom from sin, then that freedom is only going to come as we behold our God. As we look to our God, to who He is and to what He is like. Because here's the thing, we've said this before, that you become what you behold. Right? We are what we worship. And so if we're constantly looking at that sin to defeat it, rather than looking at our God who has won the victory for us and who is strong enough and who is great enough and who is powerful enough to free us from the grip of sin, if we're constantly looking at our sin rather than our God, then we shouldn't be surprised when we remain in bondage to our sin and then we question why the Lord hasn't delivered us from it. See, the the key, the the secret to defeating sin is not to focus on our sin, but instead the key to defeating sin is to see our God. We've heard the phrase that you are what you eat, right? To that, I say, be a ribeye in a world of sirloins, right? That's that's what we should be. In the same way that that we are what we worship, that, that we become What we behold, that's what had happened to Israel. Israel had started worshiping these idols. They had given themselves to this idolatry, and what had happened, they had become wicked. They had become sinful. And so here in verse 7, the Lord is saying, no, be silent. Fear me. And why should they be silent? Well, look there at verse 7. For the day of the Lord is near. Now, we've talked about this day of the Lord. This day of the Lord runs through the minor prophets, and In the state of the Lord, it could be soon incoming judgment that's going to fall on Israel or fall on her neighbors. But we also know that it is a future day, right? That there's a future day that's coming when Judah is going to be judged. But then we know that there's even another another day that is yet to come when God comes and He defeats sin and He defeats evil for the last time. So it says, be silent before the Lord God for the day of the Lord is near. And then look at the way he ends verse 7. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guest. What is this sacrifice that the Lord has prepared? Well, if we were to keep reading, what we would see from the context is that this sacrifice that the Lord has prepared, this sacrifice is those who have rebelled against him. And so the Lord is essentially saying here that, that since you've chosen to give yourself to sin, Judah, now you're going to experience the consequences. Now you're going to experience the fate of of what that means. And so this this call to see the Lord, it, it should leave us feeling the gravity and the weight, not just of Judah's sinfulness, not just of the nation's sinfulness, but also our own, that that we would be called to to see the Lord for who He is and what He is like. And and really, as we consider this, what we see is that this news of God's judgment, that it's bad news for those who love their sin, but but as we're going to see that it's good news for those who love Him. And so we see first this call to see the Lord. Next we see this, a call to seek the Lord. Flip over to chapter 2. So Zephaniah, he summarizes this judgment emphasis of the minor prophets. There's only bad news for those who love sin, but there's good news for those who love God. And it's almost as if in the beginning of chapter 2, he's going to press pause. So in chapter 1, we we have this promise of judgment that's going to fall on Judah. 
And then the first four verses of chapter 2, there's a pause and there's a call. And then in verse 5, he's going to pick up running all the way into chapter 3, where there's going to be this promise of judgment that's going to fall on the wicked nations that surround Judah. But here in chapter 2, he, he presses pause on this and he, he issues a call for repentance. So look with me at verse 1. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility, but perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. For Gaza shall be deserted and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon and Ekron shall be uprooted. And so here God calls, what's happening, God is calling this small group that fears him to gather together. See, what we learn here and what we see through the rest of the Old Testament, and really what we see even into the New Testament, is that God always has a remnant, right? He, he always has his people. So as bad as things are in Judah, there are still people in Judah who either have refused to bow the knee to the idols or who, because of what they've heard Zephaniah preach, they're beginning to wake up to what the Lord is calling them to see. And so here he's, he's calling them together to seek him. Really what this is, is this is an invitation to repentance. And so what we see here is that in the midst of this promise of judgment, we have a call for repentance. In the midst of this promise of judgment, we have an offer of grace. Now these verses, they're really a picture of repentance. I think that, that for many of us, repentance is a word that we use but maybe we don't always know what we're talking about. We know that repentance is, is a church word, right? It's a, a churchy word. And so for some of us, maybe, maybe you think repentance is just saying you're sorry. Maybe you think it's saying you're sorry because you got caught. Maybe for you, repentance is deciding, you know what? I'm not going to do that again, and I'm going to try really hard not to do that. I'm going to try really hard to overcome whatever that may be. Well, I think... Those things might be part of repentance, but they're certainly not a full picture of what repentance is. See, here in verse 3, we have a picture of what repentance looks like. Repentance is seeking the Lord through righteousness and humility. Look at verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do His just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. See, true repentance is turning from sin humbling yourself before a holy God and trusting that he will forgive you. It's seeking to live by his power and his grace as he's called you to live. So as you look here at verse 3, don't think that whenever the author says to seek righteousness, that means that you need to save yourself. Instead, what he's saying is to humble yourself and to seek the Lord. And as you follow the Lord, to be holy as he is holy. Now, there's another important piece to repentance that we see in this passage. See, repentance is the work of God's people together. See, the Lord's words here are to a gathered remnant, not an individual. Look at verse 1. Gather together. Yes, gather. It's almost as if he's saying, 
gather together, and then he's anticipating the but. And he says, yes, no, I said gather, right? Gather together, yes, gather. They come together to repent together. This is not a call to the individual. This is a call to the community. See, in this we see an important truth about not just our repentance, but also our life of faith. That your faith is to always be personal, but to never be private. Your faith should always be personal, but it should never be private. See, we follow Jesus together. We fight sin together. We celebrate wins together. And so Ethan, this is in the Old Testament talking to Judah. We live in the New Testament. But I just want you to stop and think about the New Testament for a minute. Every book of the New Testament is either written explicitly to a church or it's written to a leader for the church. See, I think that we should make a big deal about the church. And right there, you're probably saying, well, Ethan, obviously you think we should make a big deal about the church. You're the pastor. They pay you to say that, right? But we should make a big deal about the church because Jesus makes a big deal about the church. We should make a big deal about the community of faith because Jesus makes a big deal about the community of faith. Right? When we read the New Testament, what do we read? We don't read that Jesus died for this individual or for that individual. We read that Jesus died for the church. That Jesus gave his life up for the church. That Jesus has redeemed us as the church. And so when we think about repentance and the church, What this means is that we repent together. This is why the New Testament tells us to confess your sins one to another. You might say, Ethan, well, well, why why does it matter if I'm confessing or if I'm repenting? Why does the church play a part of that? Have you ever watched an animal documentary, like a nature documentary? I'm a a big fan of these. And and I have just a few goals in life. One of them is to never be the impala right? Because the impala separates from the herd, and then we know what happens, right? The lion eats them, right? The the lion destroys them. The same is true of the Christian that separates from the church. The, The Christian that separates from the community of faith is ultimately destroyed by the lion because the enemy came to seek to steal, kill, and destroy. And what I found is that that as people disengage from the church, it becomes much, much easier to disengage from their walk with the Lord. It it becomes much, much easier to disengage or uh, to become apathetic or to become cold to what the Lord has called them to do, to who the Lord has called them to be, because it's much easier when no one is holding you accountable. It's much easier when, when no one is walking alongside you. And so the Lord hasn't given us the church as a burden to be involved with. He's given us the church as a blessing to be engaged with. And he's given us the church as a gift to ourselves. I think that this is one of the reasons why I love sports and especially team sports as much as I do. See, in team sports, they, they celebrate when one person succeeds because when one wins, they all win. I've watched a lot of sports in my life. I've never seen a running back score a touchdown 
And then another player run up to him and say, hey, that was great, but I would have done it completely differently. Right? I, I've never, I've yet to be uh, at a baseball game and see a player hit a home run and the next batter say, hey, that was good, but you really should have hit it out of left field, not right field. I, I've never watched a basketball game and they hit the winning three-pointer and a teammate comes up and says, hey, your form looked really bad. No, what happens is whenever those things happen, everyone celebrates. Even though it wasn't their win, right? right? Even though I might have been on the team, but I didn't make the point, right? I, I didn't make the shot. I didn't, I didn't score the run. I, I didn't make it into the end zone, but I still celebrate because when one wins, we all win. Well, that's a picture of the church. That's a picture of life together, life in community, that we come together and we follow Jesus together, and we pray together, and we love one another together, and we celebrate when one wins, because when one wins, we all win. When one succeeds, we all succeed. When, when one is blessed, we are all blessed. And so in Zephaniah, we're called to see the Lord, right? To stop and to consider who the Lord is and what He is like. We're called to seek the Lord in repentance, and finally, here in chapter 3, we're called to wait for the Lord. Now, in chapter 3, Zephaniah turns. The book is filled with bad news, but, but here we begin to see in chapter 3, how is it that God's judgment can be bad news for those who love sin, but good news for those who love Him? So look with me at Zephaniah chapter 3, and look at verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Now I've yet to see the coffee cup that says, for in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Right? He said, Ethan's going to get good. It's going to get better. What's happening here? We'll see here in verse 8, the Lord is, he's just promised judgment on Judah and on the nations. And here in verse 8, he calls that remnant to wait for him. He, he calls them to endure. He calls them to wait, to persist through the judgment, to persist through the suffering that's going to fall on their city. And why is it that they should wait? Well, look at verse 9. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. Now remember back to chapter 1. In chapter 1, the Lord had promised that the way He was going to judge the world was that He was going to uncreate. right? He, he was going to decreate. Well, here in verse 9, we have another reversal that the, word, that the Lord is going to work. Here in verse 9, what we have is we have the Lord promising another great reversal, and that great reversal is the reversal of the Tower of Babel. That at Babel, because of humanity's pride and their sin, the Lord cursed them by confusing their speech. But here in verse 9, he says that there's coming a day when the speech of the peoples is going to be a pure speech. It's going to be a pure speech because all of them are going to call on the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. So there's a day coming when people will cry out in one voice on the name of the Lord. In other words, on that day, people will be saved. 
Now, now we know in part what that day was, right? If we were to flip forward to Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3, we would see where the Spirit falls on the people. And they begin to speak in tongues. And, and in that moment, what the Lord has done is He has reversed the curse of Babel. And so here in chapter 9, just like we saw in the book of Joel, here the Lord is promising that that day is coming. And really what this is, is this is a picture that there's a day coming when the effects of sin will be no more. But he keeps going. Look at verse 10. He unpacks it a little bit more. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. You might say, well, Ethan, why does this matter? What's so significant about Cush? Well, Cush is what we know today as Ethiopia. This was ancient Ethiopia. This was the the most distant land that God had promised to judge in chapter 2. And yet even there... The Lord has worshipers. And so what we have is we have this picture of people from every nation and every tribe and every language coming to worship the Lord. See, what we're reminded of here, just as we've been reminded of through some of the other minor prophets, is that our God is a missionary God. And our God has a heart for the nations. He, he goes after those who are lost. He, he seeks and he saves. And so here he promises that, hey, there is coming a day when this repentance, this community of repentance, this community of faith, that it isn't just going to be Judah. It, it isn't just going to be Israel. No, instead, it's going to be people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And if we were to fast forward to Revelation 7, we would find this picture. Right, of the redeemed of the Lord gathered around the throne. And, and John says that he sees in this vision that around the throne are, are people from every tribe and every tongue and every language and every people group from on the earth. They are gathered around that throne singing the praise. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Right, That here, this is what we have in verse 10. Right? In verse 10, we get this little picture, this little glimpse of the Lord telling us that there's coming a day when His kingdom around his throne, it isn't just going to be Judah. It isn't going to just be Israel. But it's going to be people like you and like me. It's going to be people that the Lord has saved, that they are there not because of what they've done, but simply and only because of God's grace. Now we could take and we could read the rest of chapter 3. We don't have the time. I'd encourage you to do that maybe this afternoon. But in the rest of chapter 3, we read that God's people, if they wait for him, then he promises to remove their shame, to complete their joy, and to rejoice over them. And so notice how this perspective has shifted. That this book starts with promises of judgment, and it ends with promises of grace and promises of joy. And so this book shifts our perspective when we realize that God judging evil God judging sin is ultimately good news for us because when God judges evil and God judges sin, then he wipes it from the face of the earth. Right? There's coming a day when sin and evil will be no more and all that will be left will be his people who, who will enjoy his grace and a perfect relationship with him. Now, here's what I love about the Bible. I love this about the minor prophets. I love this about the rest of the Bible is that there's no hesitation. There's no indecision. There's no doubt about what God is going to do. What God promises, God does. So we never read in the Bible that God might wipe them away. 
We never read in the Bible that, that there's a chance that God would do this or there's a chance that God would act this way. If we were to go back in chapter 2, we would read God promising to wipe from the face of the earth the Cherethites, the Moabites, the Assyrians, all of them. See, there's a reason that today we don't hear about the Cherethites and the Moabites and the Assyrians, but we hear about Israel on the news, right? Because God has kept his word. He's kept his word. He promised that he would remove them from the face of the earth, and that's exactly what he has done. Now, you and I, we live in the in-between. We live in the already and the not yet. See, the Lord may have wiped them off the face of the earth, but he didn't wipe evil and sin fully and finally off the face of the earth. And so maybe, well, well what's going to happen? When is that going to happen? Well, you and I, we live in the in-between, and we, we feel this in-between in our own selves, that, that our sins have already been atoned for, right? That, that positionally, we stand before the Father as perfect. Positionally, if we, we are covered by the blood of Jesus, then we stand before God the Father completely justified. But yet what we also know is that the life of faith is a life of fight against sin. So that we may be positionally justified, but we are being progressively sanctified, right? We are progressively becoming more and more like Jesus. We are progressively becoming what he has called us to be. See, here, what we see in this book is that God has promised that there's a day coming when sin is no more. There's a day when we won't just read about God's glory in Scripture, but we will see it with our own eyes. There's a day coming when we won't just read about Jesus in the Bible, but we will see Him and we will be like Him. And what the Lord's calling us to here is that until that day, we wait for the Lord knowing that his word and his plan never fail. And so we might look around the world and we might feel the effects of sin. We might feel the effects of sin in our own life. We might feel, we might see the effects of sin in our world. And God's call to you and I today is to wait for him. To wait and to see what he will do. So that means that we can endure through pain. We can endure through sin. We can endure through all of these things because we know that the day of the Lord is coming. Right, we know that the day of the Lord is soon to be here and we can trust Him. See, in Zephaniah, we see that God's judgment is bad news for those who love sin, but it's good news for those who love Him. And as we, we look at this book, really, we see two important truths for, two takeaways for us as the church, two reminders. One, we're called to holiness. See, Judah's problem is that they were God's people, but they weren't living like God's people. As the church, we are God's people. What Paul says, that we are the new Israel. And we've been called to live holy lives. We've also been called to endure. We've also been called that, that, that through this, we see this in Zephaniah, that, that through sin and through the effects of sin and through judgment that the remnant endures, right? The remnant waits on the Lord. And so you and I, what the Lord is calling us to do is that we endure. We can endure, we can fight because we know that God is good 
And that the day of the Lord is coming when He will defeat sin and He will defeat evil. And on that day, sin and evil and temptation isn't even a memory. Now, maybe, maybe you're looking at Zephaniah this morning. You're wondering why? If there's going to be grace, then why is there all this talk about judgment? Well, one, there's all this talk about judgment as a warning for us, right? That God's judgment is real. But we also get this picture of judgment so that we'll understand the judgment that Jesus experienced. See, if we can't handle the, the judgment that God pours out on Judah and that God pours out on the nations, then we can't handle the judgment that God pours out on Jesus on the cross. That This picture is really just a small picture of the wrath that Jesus endured on the cross. That, that on the cross, Jesus endured God's wrath for sin so that you and I wouldn't have to. That, that on the cross, every drop of God's wrath for my sin, for our sin, was poured out on Christ. And, and so now, because of what Jesus has done, we no longer have to experience that, right? That, that wrath is no longer coming for us. And so in Jesus Christ, we see how God's judgment can be bad news for those who love sin, but good news for those who love Him. Because on the cross, God's judgment was poured out on Jesus. And if God's judgment was poured out on Jesus, then here's what that means. It's not going to be poured out on me. And that if you've trusted Jesus, it's not going to be poured out on you. And so maybe, maybe this morning you say, Ethan, I need to trust Jesus. Ethan, this morning I, I need some of that, right? That, that I want to escape God's judgment, that I want freedom from God's judgment. Maybe this morning you, you feel the weight of your sin. Maybe this morning you feel that you are much more like all of Judah than you are like the faithful remnant of Judah. Maybe this morning you feel much more like the Moabites and the Assyrians than you do like that faithful remnant. And, and maybe this morning you're coming to that place, you're, you're coming to that realization that, that you need to give your life over from yourself and to the Lord. Maybe this morning you're realizing that you need God's grace and you need His forgiveness. And so here's what I would encourage you to do, to, to cry out to Him, to seek Him. The way Zephaniah would say, that, that you, you would cry out to him and say, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I, I know that I need a Savior and I trust that Jesus is that Savior. And so, God, I need your forgiveness. I need your grace and I need your mercy and I need you to change me. And so maybe this morning, maybe that's what you, you need to pray that prayer. You need to ask the Lord to come and to save you. Or, or maybe this morning, maybe this morning you need to take some time and you need to just be amazed by God's grace. This week, as I was reading through Zephaniah, as I was working my way from judgment to repentance to grace, I couldn't help and just stop and pray. And to just be grateful that that judgment that God promised, it fell on Jesus and not on me. And so maybe, maybe this morning, maybe as we stand and we sing, maybe you just need to be grateful for God's grace. Maybe, maybe this morning you just need to be grateful that our God is mighty to save. And that just as Zephaniah says, that if we have trusted Him, if we've been forgiven by Him, then you remember what verse 17 said? I pointed out that He rejoices over us. Get this, our God, according to Zephaniah 3.17, our God 
is a singing God. And what makes him sing is us. What makes him sing is that we have been redeemed. And we have been bought with a price and we've been brought near to him. And so maybe this morning, maybe as we stand and as we sing, maybe you need to sing because God is singing today, right? Maybe you need to sing because the Lord has saved you and he has redeemed you and he has pardoned you and he has freed you. And so because of that, I don't know what all that response looks like, but I know that it means we can at least sing, right? But maybe you need to trust him for the first time. If that's you, you can send a text. We'll have a number on the screen to 407-338-4024. And you can just put, I need to talk to someone about Jesus and you can put your name And Allie, our connections director, she's going to get you connected to who you need to talk to. She's going to set up the time for maybe her to talk with you more or for me to talk with you more or one of our pastors to talk with you more. Maybe say, Ethan, I don't want to send a text. And I get that. Well, at the end of this service, those doors are going to be open. You can walk out. We've got a next steps room on the right. And there's people in that next steps room who are ready and waiting and excited about praying with you about talking with you, about celebrating with you what the Lord is doing in your life. That's Gloria's story. We, we baptized Gloria. Pastor Reed gra- baptized Gloria just a few minutes ago. In a couple weeks, at the end of the service, her and I talked right back there. And she gave her life to Christ. Maybe, maybe that's you this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, thank you for your amazing grace. And Lord, I pray that we would be amazed by your grace this morning. Father, I pray that we would be reminded of just how great your grace really is. Lord, I pray that that we who once were blind but now see, who once were dead but now have been made alive, that we would celebrate that grace today. Father, I pray that we would wait for you with confidence knowing that you are good and that your plan never fails. And Lord, we are grateful for you. And Lord, we want to see you more clearly and we want to seek you in repentance and we want to wait for what you are doing. And so Father, help us to see you clearly, help us to seek and find and help us to wait patiently and wait with confidence. Father, we pray this and we ask this In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to the Central Church Podcast. For more information on how to take your next step, visit us online at gocentralchurch.org.